So in 2008, a guy called Jordan Light wrote um, a blog post that went viral entitled Death on Mount Everest, The Perils of the Descent. Hopefully you're going to see something on the screen right now. And he basically said that of the 28,000 people that have climbed Mount Everest, a very small proportion didn't make it down, actually 1.3%. But of those that didn't make it back down, tragically lost their life, 56% died on the way down. And he made a simple observation that everyone trains for the ascent. We define success as getting to the top of the mountain. So people that go into training to climb Mount Everest, they do altitude training, getting ready for the lower oxygen levels. They get uber fit. They want to get ready. They want to reach the top. But no one really trains for the descent. We see success is getting to the top, but most people that don't make it back down, they die on the way down. And he says that's maybe a metaphor for life, that we train to get to the top. We want to progress. We want to ascend. In fact, we want constant ascent. We idolize success. We want to realize our dreams. We want to make targets. We want to reach the targets. Progress, progress, progress. When we get to the top, if we ever get to the top, what's there? And more terrifying, what happens when you're on the way down? None of us train for the descent. So some of the ancient wisdom passed through the centuries, spiritual wisdom about resilience and delayed gratification and patience and emptying yourself of ego and letting go of power and control. A lot of the stuff we associate with the second half of life, we've dismissed that like nonsense. We don't want that. We want progress. We want to climb. We want to ascend. Well, we're in a moment of cultural descent. We're on our way down and it is terrifying. So I'm entitling this talk Descending with Dignity. Now, I can tell you this is something that I haven't been doing over the last six months. Um, so this isn't me a message from my life experience of the last six months. We're going to look at the life of Elijah. But let me take you back six months. For those of you that have been part of the KXE family for the last little while, you'll probably remember the end of February when we celebrated our 10th birthday. We had a party and then on Sunday, I think it was the 1st of March, we gathered at Regent High School and in the Ethiopian church across three services, well over a thousand people gathering to celebrate the story of what God had done over the last decade. There was a sense of celebration, of faith, expectancy in the room. We were looking back and partying, but we were looking forward saying, God, would you do something even more extraordinary in the years to come? And we worshipped. In fact, I'm going to play a little clip of the worship. Um, and it was beautifully. Hopefully you can hear some of the sound of this as people were singing and lifting their voices like louder and louder. Can you hear our praises roar? And hopefully you can hear it the roar beginning to rise, energy in the room. It was extraordinary. You can see people in the front row and the back row dancing, waving, wolf whistling. It was an amazing moment. And then that momentum stopped in a heartbeat. And within literally a week or two, we were in lockdown. So for me, that was like a Mount Everest moment, like so exciting. Like we thought we were on the cusp of something. God was doing a new thing in our community. It's like, come on, let's go. And then two weeks later, 
we had our live stream a little bit like this. Um, the beginning of lockdown, we were wearing masks. It was my first preach to camera. The week before had been incredibly intense. We basically worked hard to take everything online, online services, reimagining hubs, reimagining our compassion ministries. It was incredibly stressful. And then at the end of the week, I gave this Sunday message um, to the camera. And then I went home and I was totally broken. I got in, I went downstairs, I collapsed on our sofa and just felt this sense of despair of like, oh my goodness, all of that momentum has been broken. Now you can see this picture. My wife came downstairs and she found me there and she did what she thought would be the most loving thing to do. She took a photo and, and sent it to my family and my family incredibly enjoyed that image of a broken pea, not even sitting on the sofa, just slumped on the sofa. Now, I don't know if you've experienced your moment a bit like that. I thought that was rock bottom, by the way. Um, that wasn't rock bottom. That was just the beginning of the free fall. That was just the beginning of the descent, and it got worse. And there's been snot, and there's been tears. I've descended, but not with much dignity. So we're going to look at the life of Elijah. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, the backdrop to this story then is Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal. You have this epic moment in chapter 18. Now you have King Ahab and it says of King Ahab that he was more evil than any of the kings before him. Now the kings before him had been pretty evil. So we're talking a seriously evil leader reigning over the people. And his wife Jezebel had introduced to the nation of Israel the worship of the god Baal. In other words, she turned the people of God away from God and towards this other God. And there was tension in the nation. And Elijah said to King Ahab, we need a showdown. Why don't we gather the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and, and I'll come as well and we'll send up two altars and we'll put two bulls on the altars and we'll make a sacrifice and the prophets of Baal why don't they call on Baal to come and descend by fire and consume the sacrifice and then I'll do the same and whichever God answers by fire that's the God worthy of worship and Ahab thinks yeah that that's a pretty good idea. Let, let's do it. So they gather, they build the altars, they put the bulls there and they make their preparations and the prophets of Baal go first and they're praying and they're contending, lifting shouts, come on, consume the sacrifice. And nothing happens. Nada. Like brutal awkwardness. And then Elijah says, well, let me have a go. And he gets a bucket of water and he pours it over the altar just to make this even more tricky. And then he calls out to Yahweh God, the God of Israel. And God descends by fire, consumes the sacrifice, licks up the water. And then there's this epic moment of victory and, and celebration. It's a moment of kingdom breakthrough. It's like the top of Mount Everest moment. Like, what a miracle took place. Like that's the high point, right? Before the descent, before the free fall kicks in. We all train for the high point. We all train for that moment of breakthrough, of celebration and victory. But what happens when we enter free fall? And the answer is, 
It's terrifying. So let's read this passage of 1 Kings 19. This straight after the Mount Carmel victory. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, whoever knows what one of those is, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, we don't spend much time talking about the heroes of the faith encountering suicidal thoughts, like the heroes of the faith hitting deep, dark patches and seasons in their life. But that's the witness of the scriptures, that these heroes hit moments of deep darkness and vulnerability. And in this moment, I just, I can't take it anymore. I quit. He just had this epic victory over 450 prophets of Baal. And now one woman is causing him to run for his life, to wish that he was dead. Let's look briefly at the effects of fear in our lives. Because the reality is for many of us right now, we are aware of fear at play in our thinking, in our behavior. Let's just name the effect of fear in our lives using Elijah as an example. So number one, fear distorts reality. Fear distorts reality. Let me give you a really simple example of this. You'll probably remember um, as lockdown began and supermarket supplies were running low and there was anxiety. Are we going to have enough food? Are we going to have enough to get through this season? And in Sydney, Australia, this video, we're not going to watch it. I should have prepared that, went viral. These two women fighting for toilet roll of like, what are we going to do if toilet roll supplies run out? We won't cope we don't want to run around with dirty bottoms like we we need loo roll and there is this fight in the supermarket that is what happens when you lose grip on reality now that's a silly example but we all experience moments when reality got distorted we began to catastrophize and think what if this happens what if that happens and we all felt overwhelmed Well, Elijah, this hero of the faith, he experienced something similar. Listen to this then from verse nine. He basically went to a cave and hid. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Can can you hear the emotion in that? Like, woe is me. Like, this is a nightmare. I'm the only one that's been faithful, that hasn't bowed the knee. I'm the only one left. Now, that's how he felt. He felt deep isolation, like he was trapped and he was alone. But let's just look at fact. Let's look at reality. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the preceding chapter, the messenger from the king approaches Elijah and says, haven't you heard, Elijah, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, caves, 50 each, you can do the maths, um, and supplied them with food and water. So Elijah knew there were a hundred prophets that had remained faithful that had been hidden in a cave. 
But in this moment of fear, he felt alone. It distorted his perspective. Look at this as another example. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. That's how he felt, like overwhelmed, catastrophizing. Let's look at actually what happened in the chapter before. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So he was right. They had been torn down. But the last thing that happened was actually a repairing of the altar. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God. In other words, the end of the story was a mass turning back to Yahweh God. But when fear grabs hold of you, it distorts your reality, right? This is the effect of fear in our lives. Number two then, fear erodes faith. So let's remind ourselves of faith. This is how the author of Hebrews defines faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. So there is a future that God has ordained for us and faith is the belief that God can bring about that destiny. So when you lose faith, you lose hope in what is to come and when hope is diminished despair begins to kick in this is why it says in proverbs 13 that hope deferred makes the heart sick like there are so many people i'm not talking out there in the culture i'm talking about those in the church the followers of jesus where despair is kicking in i've heard numerous people say i've got nothing to look forward to i don't have hope for the future and when hope is deferred put to one side sickness kicks in emotional mental physical spiritual sickness kicks in when faith begins to erode have you experienced that I have, and I'm guessing many have. This is the effect of fear in our lives. Number three, fear makes you run and hide. This is what it says in verse three. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, it's been hard in lockdown to run, right? You can run from the bathroom to the bedroom or from the kitchen to the bedroom, but we haven't really been able to escape. And that's been terrifying. So whilst we haven't actually been able to run from this experience, we all know that we've wanted to escape it. We've wanted to hit the eject button where circumstances, it feels overwhelming. You're like, I I can't cope. Another week of lockdown, another week of not seeing friends and family. I can't cope. I just want to escape this moment. Like, I'm sure we've all been there wanting to hit eject and maybe you have a backup plan in your life this is probably a massive overshare but I'm going to go there I have a backup plan for life um, that when I'm feeling really heavy and overwhelmed I'm like I I don't have what it takes to lead in this current crisis and and sort of homeschooling that's been intense and trying to build a healthy marriage whilst in lockdown all of it felt overwhelming the the get out for me was like I'm just going to quit this and become a maths teacher like I, I studied maths at university. I love maths. Ritka's in the background. She studied maths. That's her backup plan, obviously, as well. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to become a maths teacher and I'm going to coach the under-14s football team and I'm going to take that team to glory. And books will be written about that team. A film will be made, a bit like Coach Carter, of the epic things that happened through that football team. And these young people are going to become men of stature and wisdom. That's what I'm going to do with my life. And it... It's escape, right? It's the grass is greener thinking. Like, I'm sure maths teachers are watching this. Like, you have no idea how hard it is being a maths teacher. And I teach the under-14s football team, and they're rubbish. Um, it's, it's the grass is greener. It's yeah. wanting to escape responsibility because it's overwhelming. M- my hunch is some of you have actually been on Google 
checking out other jobs and career paths because you're like, right here, it's too much. I'm guessing a lot of you are thinking, I need to escape London, living in London, it's too much. I need to get out of this relationship. I need to do whatever it takes just to escape this moment because it's overwhelming. Um, We've been there. And my encouragement is that's the voice of fear, not the voice of your father. Don't make bad decisions when fear is loud in your ear. But this is the effect of fear in our lives. Fourthly, and it's going to get more optimistic, don't worry, I know this is fairly depressing. But fourthly, fear drowns out the voice of God. Now, a number of commentators would say of this text that this is part of Elijah's decommissioning. When you're a prophet, your job is to hear the voice of God and communicate it to the people. When the voice of God has been reduced, to some translations say, the sound of sheer silence, you can't do your job. So this is the moment where Elijah hands on the baton to Elisha, who becomes the prophet of Israel. But we've probably experienced something similar because fear is noisy. It's like a clattering sound. And when you open up your scriptures, when fear regarding the present and the future overwhelms you, it's hard to hear the still small voice of God. You know, fear drowns out the voice of God. So if that's the effect of fear in our life, that's what it feels like when you're in free fall. A summary would be it distorts reality, it erodes faith, it makes you want to hit the escape, the eject button, and it drowns out the voice of God. That's free fall. How do you descend with dignity? And let me tell you what the answer isn't. It isn't pull yourself together. Like, get your together. Like, be stronger. Be the best version of yourself. You can do it. You need someone just telling you that you're a strong, confident woman, a strong, confident man. You got this. You got this. You don't have to have this. Honestly, I don't have this right now. Like, leading in this, I felt so vulnerable, so on the edge. I can't pull it together. I've not got the energy to pull myself together. The answer has to be better than pull yourself together. Here's the answer. It's fix your eyes on Jesus. In a crisis, when everyone else is freaking out, find the one person who isn't freaking out and follow them. I can tell you who isn't freaking out right now, and that's Jesus. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's full of grace, full of hope for what is to come. You know, he has power. He's the God of the impossible. Like, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, the turning point in this story is when Elijah begins to understand something of the character of God. He knows the fragility of his own character. He's in free fall. He's panicking. But when he realizes the character of God, that changes everything. So what do we learn about God? Number one, that he's a God of grace, of extraordinary grace. Listen to this encounter then. So Elijah lays down by that bush and he falls asleep. All at once, the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. I love this encounter, right? Nearly every time in scripture when there's an angelic visitation, the first thing the angel says is do not be afraid. Why? Because people see a massive angelic being radiating glorious light and they freak out like, ah! And the angel, I say, do not be afraid. Elijah's so knackered, so spent, he doesn't even acknowledge the presence of the angel. He turns around and he sees the equivalent of a bacon roll and a flat white. He's not even aware of the angel. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, thank you, God. And he 
knocks back the flat white, he walks down the bacon roll, doesn't even acknowledge the angel. I need a bit more sleep, falls back to sleep. Angel comes back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So what does he do? Doesn't even acknowledge the angel. He gets up and he eats and drinks again. A second bacon roll. One was good, but two, that's amazing. Another flat white. You know, God meets him at his point of need. Sometimes we think if we were to encounter God in this moment, he'd say, you should have done more. Like, where did your disciplines go during lockdown? Have you been reading the scriptures? Have you been praying? Have you been behaving well? And would feel this sense of condemnation, but Elijah doesn't get that. He gets a bacon roll equivalent of, uh, that's the message translation, a, a flat white and extraordinary grace. You need to know right now, if you feel like you've done lockdown really badly and your marriage isn't in a great place and you've not been enjoying your kids and you've been wrestling with huge doubt and feeling a sense of shame, God wants to meet you and not condemn you because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He wants to minister grace to you. He wants to look after your emotional, physical, spiritual, mental well-being. If he if you need a nap, he wants to bless you with sleep. He wants to care for you. Elijah realizes God is a God of extraordinary grace. Secondly, God is a God of restoration. I love this about the story. This is a, um, what it says in verse 18. Strengthened by the flat Y and the bacon roll. Um, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Here's a diagram I prepared that summarizes this journey. And I know what some of you are thinking. They're like, that is an extraordinary slide. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Um, so you've got this victory over Baal, this kind of like high point on Mount Carmel. You've got this free fall moment, a journey through the desert as he begins to have these suicidal thoughts overwhelmed by darkness and then he has these angelic visitations and then he's invited into this counter with God at Mount Horeb right now what's significant about the journey well this is what's significant behind this story is another story because Elijah and the nation of Israel the defining story of the Old Testament is the Exodus narrative where they have a victory over Egypt at the Red Sea as the Egyptian armies are overcome they have a free fall moment a journey a really hard journey through the wilderness and then an encounter with God at Mount Sinai now what's really significant then is that Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are one and the same mountain. Same mountain, different names. In other words, God takes Elijah back to the place where the covenant was established. He takes him back to the beginning as a way of saying, my covenant promises to you, they remain. Like in that covenant, I became your father to the nation, but to you individually, Elijah, I became your father. You became my child. I promise never to leave you, never forsake you. I promise to lead you to a place of abundance. I'm taking you back to the beginning to remind you of your destiny, of your identity, of the covenant relationship that we have because I love you. You see, this encounter is a moment of phenomenal restoration and renewal. Like God wants to meet you in this moment, minister grace to you, but then restore your innermost being. You don't have to pull yourself together. You have to let God catch you and restore your soul. Here's the final thing he learns, and we'll land with this, that God is a God of intimacy. Now, one of the fascinating things of this story is that he has this encounter on the mountain. Let's read it. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, 
he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Now, everywhere else in scripture, when you hear of earthquake, wind and fire, these are manifestations of the presence of God. Here's a quick example. Mount Sinai, the story I referenced earlier. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Very, very frightening. Um, With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Why? Because there was fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. In other words, earthquake, wind, fire, manifestations of the presence of God. Listen to this then, Psalm 102. God makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Isaiah 29, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise with windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire. Pretty much everywhere else in scripture, think of Pentecost. There was an earthquake, wind and fire. Throughout scripture, these are manifestations of God's presence. And yet the writer of this account in 1 Kings 19 says, makes it really clear, God wasn't in the earthquake. What? God wasn't in the wind. What? God wasn't in the fire. What? Is this kind of like people reading it would have been thinking like, this doesn't make sense. And then the writer, here comes the killer punch. He was in the still, small voice. This sound of sheer silence. We said earlier, fear is noisy. But intimacy comes with a whisper. Like we whisper sweet nothings. You don't see anyone shouting into their lover's ear, sweet nothings. That would just be super weird. You whisper, because whisper is the language of intimacy. So Elijah is drawn to this cave on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where the covenant began, and he hears the whisper of intimacy of the Father. You see, that whisper is the reassuring whisper that comes from heaven. And just one little, you know, hearing of that whisper and you experience peace that transcends understanding. You begin to experience shalom, this Hebrew word for wellness and and wholeness. Like fear is noisy, but we need to tune into a still small voice that reassures the soul. How do you descend with dignity? And the answer is it's not on you. You don't have to pull yourself together. You have to stare at the face of Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand his character, his goodness, his mercy, his grace. He's the God that cares about your well-being. He's the God of grace. He's the God of restoration. He's the God of intimacy. Let me close with this story and then we're going to worship. There was a guy that on the news they picked up this story who experienced the trauma of his daughter dying on a flight to France. She had some allergies. There was a sandwich that she ate. Um, It wasn't labeled correctly. And on the flight, um, things kicked off um, and it began to block airways. They gave her a shot of adrenaline. It didn't really work. They tried to land the plane early, but there wasn't a great place to land the plane. So they eventually get to their destination. destination. They land, paramedics come on board, but by that point, things had gone really badly. And he's in this moment. Can you imagine the trauma of watching your daughter slip away when you're going on holiday to France? And he's panicking. He was an atheist. The daughter actually was a Christian. She'd been baptized the year before. And the mum and dad had been to the service to watch her baptism but they had no faith and in this moment of desperation probably the darkest moment in his life he sees five angels begin to encircle um, his daughter 
Now he's in this moment of like, help, help, not shouting necessarily upwards, but shouting around somebody, help. And tragically, his daughter passes away. But these five angels, and if you want to listen to the story, just Google search on BBC, a bright yellow light. You'll see it on the screen, the link. These five angels come. Um, and he knew in his gut, as an atheist, he had no framework for this. He knew in his gut they'd come to take her home. And this shot of peace began to fill his body. And he was aware of two things in that moment. Number one, that she's gone to a better place. Like he'd seen her get baptized, enter the family of God, hear the voice of the father speak. This is my daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. He knew in that moment she'd gone to be with the father. But two, he knew in that moment, in the depths of his darkness, he could experience light. He didn't have to wait for death. As these five angels encircled his daughter, he realized there is hope. And yes, there was a descent, a deep descent of grief to come. But he could do that with Jesus. Anyway, he, he gets home, you know, he's grieving. He goes back to the church where his daughter had been baptised. He gives his life to Jesus. His family come to faith. And yes, they journeyed through grief. But do you know what he learned? There is a way of descending with dignity. And here's the key. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the light in the midst of the darkness because he's a God of grace and he's a God of restoration and he's a God who speaks a still small voice in the darkest of situations and that still small voice births hope. 